Welcome to Past Perfect by CEU Medieval Radio. You're listening to an episode from our archives. For more recent episodes, head to podcast.ceu.edu. And if you want to keep up with the latest news about us, follow us on Facebook at CEU Medieval Radio, or visit our website at medievalradio.org. Thanks. This is Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're here joined today by Professor Yoshif Laslavsky. Um, professor Laslavsky is a professor at Central U- European University in Budapest in the Department of Medieval Studies, as well as an associate professor at the Department of Medieval and Post-Medieval Archaeology at ELTA. Um, he has really quite extensive work on monasticism, crusades, uh, castles, and... Uh, well, what can I say? We're very glad to have you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, um, so we have a couple. Uh, th- there are a couple of things uh, that we're going to be talking about on today's show, but the uh, the one that struck me as most interesting is new approaches to not just medieval archaeology, but uh, how we study the medieval past in general something fundamentally changed in the last few decades and maybe even during the last two decades in the sense of the technical changes, the information technology revolution, what we see around started to affect basically everything. And it also has got an effect on on the past or at least how we understand the past or how we can experience the past. So I... I would very much separate these two things or that the two are related to each other very much. Uh, let me give you just an example. Okay. Um, we, when we think about like, okay, how people were living, where are the remains of the past and so on, we have got this all these kind of traditional means and ways of reading chronicles and charters and old books. And of course, from from now for quite a while we also have got archaeology so digging and finding things but things like satellite images and remote sensing and so on doesn't seem to be for quite a while anything related to this kind of things and what you can see more and more is that this is getting into the main line of research activities related to some of the questions. So, for example, if you say, oh, we are interested in monasteries, this is something which is not so much part of the present life, but we know that culture, um, contacts between different parts of Europe in the past, in the Middle Ages, was so heavily connected to these kind of organizations then obviously we can study them with their manuscripts, with their codices, and so on. But now you see that there's a growing evidence coming from aerial photography, 
certain types of geophysical surveys and so on. So this is more for the understanding. I think also the other aspect is equally important that until very recently the the public or those who are interested in this kind of things could get an image, quotation mark image, about the medieval past in books and they could get it sometimes with illustrations, mainly of the original things which has survived and then more and more reconstructions. And what you see now, you can actually experience it mm. with uh, virtual reality things, if you just think about how popular are the various war games and oh, so yes. on, <laughs> and you can be a knight and you can build your own medieval castle and things like that. So <laughs> there is a there is a tremendous change which is going around in this sense. With um, want to talk about games and stuff in a minute, but with. The development of aerial photography and these satellite images, in the case of uh, monasteries, for instance, we know that there is a set, a sort of idealized set ground plan where you look in a textbook on monasticism and you will see a Cistercian monastery is supposed to look like this. Now, if we know what they're supposed to look like, is there really a lot of need to look at these uh, satellite images of monastic ruins. Yeah, it, it's related to the question, what do we think that we know? Because okay. certainly many of these monuments are still standing. If you think about like uh, medieval monasteries and particularly in those parts of Europe where they were more fortunate to have these monuments not destroyed in the later centuries, you can, in a way, experience them by visiting them. But there are aspects which which are gone, which are not there anymore, okay. and which were equally important. Because like a monastery is where we think, okay, there were 6, 12, 24, or maybe some more monks, and they were praying all day and copying codices and things like that, uh, dealing with their nice small monastic garden with herbs and so. That's true. But behind that, you had enormous big organization. You could have had a huge estate system, if you think about the Benedictine order, which was managed we may use this term <laughs> in a way, which was maintained, which was organized, and peasants were living on that, craftsmen were living on that, and their life was organized from this monastic center. The building is just a kind of tip of the iceberg of a huge monastic okay. estate. And there were some others, like the Mendicant, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, who had a very t different lifestyle. And in that case, you can't understand this without the urban background, the people who supported them. I mean, drawing comparisons between present and past, um, one thing that, uh, that strikes me that I think might be a sort of interesting question to ask is, can we think of monastic institutions in a similar way that we think of corporations nowadays? 
In, in a way, yes. So, and we, with this, we already reached the question of interpretation because okay. it's not only that some of these monuments are not anymore with us and we need to use aerial photography to find them or we have to excavate to find the traces, but that word is in a way fundamentally different from our. Our time perception is Fair different. Uh, the people's mindset is totally different. So even if we collect uh, enormous amount of data, this is a 19th century idea <laughs> that if you collect everything uh, in a systematic way, then you understand the whole thing. Now, this is very misleading because you can collect, you can just collect books and books and books. It doesn't mean that you understand what is in these books. So if you are confronted with the fact that we also have to at least grasp the mindset of these people. Mm -hmm. We also have to think about it and we from the very beginning know that we are not able to understand it as, a, as they understood. Then we have to apply things which can make at least similar to our understanding. So if I say, okay, the filiation system of the Cistercian order, this will be something um, understood by a few specialists who are interested right. in that one. But if I say, look, talking about a very international organization in which there were people all around in Europe living in very special buildings and their task was again a very special one. They had the common language, they had communication systems, they had regular meetings, regular business meetings to sort out the things and they had a common goal then you may think, ah, oh, this is a, um, yeah, a multi-company or <laughs> something like that. And it is in some ways true, but of course it's fundamentally different because this quotation mark multi-company has not been organized in principle to achieve profit and production figures and things like that, but there was something which was spiritual. It was not for this word, it was for the word, for a different word. And even if we try to understand the spiritual aspects, we also have to understand the material aspects for which we can apply even modern concepts. It's, it's, it's very difficult, I found, for um, some, some people around my age to understand monastic life as such, because on one hand, there is this very spiritual, very regulated um, ordering of the day in the life. And on the other hand, there are also, I mean, getting back to the very material aspects, I remember uh, uh, reading years ago about um, abbots' visit to monasteries and the, you know, the head abbot being sort of displeased at the fact that all of these monks were wearing very red pointy shoes, these very fashionable, uh, really elaborate kind of, personally, I think they look a little bit ridiculous nowadays, but very trendy, um, items. So 
um, how would you, um, just very briefly sort of reconcile these two seemingly opposite spiritual and material, um, aspects of their life? It's actually quite f- funny that you <laughs> mentioned these shoes because it just made me remember that one of my, in a way, first experience with, with, uh, monasticism in a way uh-huh. uh, was uh, obviously in, in Hungary in the 1970s and in 1980s monastic life was not very much present in the everyday life. So mm-hmm. if you visited Italy and first you have seen uh, major monasteries and lots of monks at least in certain places, this is still nothing to be compared to the Middle Ages mm-hmm. then you had interesting things which you haven't yet recognized. So, for example, the first thing what I recognized is traveling out from the nice socialist world of Hungary to the Western society that uh, when I went to a monastery in, in Italy, these young monks had, of course, their proper monastic dress, but they had fantastic Adidas shoes on them, <laughs> which, you know, was a kind of dream for us that you can buy this, although they were very expensive. Mm-hmm. So this is, it just came to my mind this as a strange thing. But what I wanted to say with this, that it is true. So, I mean, the monastic way of life, which was... Uh, an everyday experience for a medieval person, whether living in a small village or in a big town or on the way or traveling and so on. This is not something what is uh, an everyday experience for most of the people today. And we also know that this type of life, these communities, just influenced all aspects of medieval life. Hmm. And it is not influencing. So this is when I say it's not simply enough to collect data. It's the, the thing is that you have to put yourself or your interest into a different mindset. So, um, getting back to, um, getting back to these, uh, sort of new approaches, we were talking about monasticism earlier. Um, well, uh, Bridging these sorts of gaps. I mean, we were talking not only about material and spiritual bridges for the monks themselves, but um, connecting present-day people to um, aspects of medieval life. Um, what sort of things, um, in your opinion, are most helpful in terms of uh, how to how to take you know some kid from LA? and introduce them to the medieval lifestyle. I think the the one of the issues here which is not only for monasticism but any kind of of uh, research related to history or past is this um behind the screens effect or the investigation. I mean if you see how popular are the programs <laughs> Mm-hmm. in which, of course, you are investigating a, a, a terrible murder case uh-huh. or uh, you are investigating a kind of um, secret organization. <laughs> These are all in all so much interesting for people. And I think what is really interesting in that is not only 
the actual event or organization. It's the way how you learn, how you understand these things. This is what I know. My my field is archaeology. Mm-hmm. And this is I know that when you meet somebody and you say, "Oh, I'm an archaeologist," it's it's a, such a regular <laughs> thing that they say, "Oh, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a kid," because it's so terribly interesting that you find out all these things from from this bits and pieces and potsherds and things like that, and you may find these fantastic things and and uh, treasures and all these kind of <laughs> things. So uh, I think that's one of the issues. If you are able to explain, show these in the process, how do we know what we know and how we have collected data and how you present it, that is that is one of the ways. So... Let me give you an example about the, you said, okay, monasticism and and modern approaches. If I say, you know, medieval monastic orders had a crucial role in transforming agrarian landscape and to change the woodland cover of Europe in the 12th and 13th century. (laughs) That's terribly interesting for me. (laughs) Maybe for a kid, not so much. But if I say, look, we use satellite images and aerial photographies. We identified all kinds of strange features in the landscape. We don't we didn't even know what are these. And then we realized oh these are fish ponds. And these medieval monks had to eat a lot of fish because that was a kind of regulation. Right, their diet. Yes. And so they kept this fish in these fish ponds, but the fish pond is fundamentally useful for us because you have got pollen cores. Okay. You can, you can use all kinds of natural scientific methods to find out, oh, there was woodland around it or more grassland or there was cultivated land because in the deposits, in the mud and so on of, of these old fish ponds, you find evidence for that one. So I think that's simply interesting because it connects present-day life. You can show how the uh, area photography is actually working and then how you take the samples and how it is analyzed by all kinds of natural scientists who will tell us all kinds of things which we never thought before and we cannot read out these things from the chronicles and so on. I mean, who would honestly write down, we had 14 fish ponds and they were full of lots of fish and they were very delicious. I mean, that's a very good point. They they most probably wrote down the 14 fish ponds because that was the the financial aspect, (laughs) taking care of it. But whether, you know, what was the vegetation around it and how... It's influenced even the erosion around this fish pond and things like that. That's not what you will read in a monastic chronicle. Fair enough. Unless you have got a disaster, of course, which which is always <laughs> something what is recorded. Okay. Uh, digressing a bit, um, going off a tangent on something that you said earlier, I have to ask... Um, you have you have decades of field experience, and I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of wondering... We're talking about these treasures and all sorts of un, you know, 
untold things that archaeologists have found. Um, is there any particular find of yours that you think is is really really fantastic that you know is is sort of the find of finds so far? You mean in my personal thing? In your personal. So experience. that that's a very standard question. Also, I have to <laughs> I have to say that. Have you ever found something really yeah, interesting? Yeah, really good. <laughs> yeah, I did, but none of none of them, I think, were in this sense um, treasures like that. I mean, again, let me give you an example, uh -huh. uh, and it's more and more the case in archaeology that finding something is not like. So it's not like the Indiana Jones experience <laughs> that you Darn. just hit the site <laughs> and then you, you recognize the spot and then you open it up with a secret gate, uh, <laughs> through a secret gate or something, and then you are there and then you find it. This is the Tutankhamun grave type of thing. Right, right. <laughs> no, this is more and more preparation, work, collecting data, and so on. And then you may get to the place where you believe that you will find something very interesting. This is, I think it's very, a very good example. There's a very popular TV program uh, on archaeology. It's Time Team. Yes. <laughs> and it's, uh, this is a team which shows how archaeology is working. Of course, it's a kind of TV reality version how archaeology is working, but it's done by archaeologists. Uh, there's a very, he's not anymore doing this. There's a very famous guy called Mick Aston mm -hmm. who did this, who is a, an excellent specialist of medieval monastic things otherwise. So they spent three days on one site, and this is what they are filming. And then you believe, aha, so this is what they are doing. But there are weeks and monks, months, sorry, <laughs> not monks, but months, uh, when, uh, when a whole team is working to collect data and do everything. And then they hit the site for three days. So this is more and more a the case in archaeology. This is, if you ask me about what what I found, I'm now presently working on a site which is a, a glass production center. Okay. And in in an interesting way, in during the first weeks of the excavations, we found very good evidence how glass has been produced in the 14th, 15th century, which is not something we know very well in Hungary and what kind of objects they made and so on. But this is, this is a site I've been dealing with, not constantly, not all the time, for something like 20 years. Mm -hmm. Always putting together bits and pieces of information from maps, from field walking, from aerial photography, from earlier excavations and so on. And then you can actually work on the site and then you <sighs> may find what you are looking for or something what you never looked for. <laughs> 20 years of preparation, that is an awful long time. But yeah, but this is not, not in the sense that I, I haven't been doing well, anything else during this of course. time. <laughs> there were some other sites and so on. But in a sense, it, it's true that uh, 
present-day research is, particularly in archaeology, is either you are doing your work where you have to, Mm -hmm. this means where you built a motorway and things like that. So even if I say, oh, I'm very interested in that monastery, (laughs) but then they are digging uh, because the motorway passes that village, but not the monastery, but maybe a deserted village sites from the 12th century. So either you work according to these needs, or very rarely you have got the opportunity to carry on simply research excavations, which should be absolutely planned. So this is not that I dream up something and go to the site and then... Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and so, with are, are with the site you're working on now, um, is there anything um, you're planning on doing that uh, takes advantage of these this, these new technology, these new innovative approaches? Um, are you going to try and um, have some innovation um, in your approach to this site that hasn't been tried in in Hungary before? Um, this is again a field which shows very well that how much things changed. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about a site which is interesting in the sense that it's belonged to a monastery. It was part of Pilishebi, which was a big Cistercian monastery, a member of a kind of big family <laughs> of very international character, a very hierarchically and very well organized organization. And we also may say that they were very profit-oriented, at least in their economic activity. Now, concerning new approaches or all these other methods and means and ways, it's a need because let's take just this example, glass production. Okay. Glass production is a highly sophisticated, very complex industrial process. It's not only today, it was in the Middle Ages, even in antiquity. This is almost kind of secret technology, what uh, specialists were passing to each other if they wanted, or specialists were hired by organizations. Now, to find out what technology they have used Mm -hmm. and what kind of glass they produced, what was the quality of that one, is not anymore just finding these pieces and telling telling you that, you know, oh, this is good quality, this is nice and shiny (laughs) and colorful. In order to find out what is really the, the technological process of producing these things, you need what is called archaeometry, which is all kinds of physical, chemical types of analysis carried out by people who normally work for industry to Hmm. find out what modern glass is doing Hmm. and how the quality can be controlled. So very often the same laboratories can produce results for us in the sense that, okay, you have got this bits and pieces coming from your excavation and then you find a few glass fragments in Buddha castle and you pose the question were these things produced in this workshop okay. or were they produced in Venice 
which was the yes. big center of glass production. Um, and just just a final, very um, minute question. Um, the site you're talking about, I mean, what exact time periods are we talking about? Uh, if you don't mind me asking, both for the um, the monastery and for glass production. Mm-hmm. So, for generally, Pilishebi is something which existed from the last decades of the 12th century till the mid 16th century. So mm-hmm. this is the time frame. The particular site I've mentioned also probably existed from the 11th or 12th century. At one point, the abbey obtained it or received it as a royal donation, most probably. Mm-hmm. And then it's also existed till the mid-16th century. The actual grass production site is most probably 14th, 15th century. So... We are talking about the period of King Louis the Great or King Matthias. Later Middle so Ages. On, which means that it's also interesting because all we have got certain image about this period. Either we learned it in school or we read about it later. And this is also an issue that you start to make another picture of that period, which Hmm. is not simply about the battle of King Matthias, which is, of course, very important, Uh but how, for example, the glass objects in his court were produced, where did they come from, how they were manufactured, and things like that, which today we think this is, of course, part of the everyday life, but not necessarily thing that... This is also a question of finding out how the life was experienced in these periods. Very interesting. So um, we've been talking a lot about monasteries and new approaches, and I have to ask you about one of your other research interests, crusading. Now, um, for obvious uh, reasons, I know the American context in the past uh, decade or so there has been a real interest and resurgence in studying the Crusades uh, in the medieval period for whatever reason there is. And um, the what I know of the um, Crusades has mostly been, you know, William of Tyre, lots of these um, very sort of well-documented, well-studied uh, historical accounts. Or and famous movies, maybe. Oh, God. <laughs> famous or infamous, depending on your point of view. <laughs> and uh, so um, since the theme of today is on new approaches to things, um, I have to ask, uh, what sort of uh, new approaches are we seeing to uh, the Crusades in the Middle Ages? Uh, I think there are two main changes in this field. One of them is really about approaches, methods, questions, and things like that. The other is more about interpretation. And I think this is perhaps even more understandable for uh, somebody who has got a an interest like in present-day word politics. <laughs> now think about that you have got a war situation. Mm. And the war situation is going on for decades and centuries in a way. 
And then you, we all know that the enemies in both sides have got the certain uh, goals. They have got political or religious or this kind of thing uh, agenda. But we, we all understand that this is such a complex thing. Let's take one point, holy war. Mm. This is obviously crusade is a holy war. But what do we mean by holy war? I mean, holy for whom and in which way? And this is also something which in which we also realize that how much our present day word is influencing our understanding of the past. Sure. If you just make a quick search for the term crusade, mm-hmm. uh, you can have periods when in journals and newspapers, in normal daily life, let's say, so not in the word of history textbooks, uh, this word would not appear at all. And then suddenly you can have a, uh, an event, mm-hmm. we experienced an event not long time ago right. of that kind, which just brought back this concept and whether we are now in the age of a crusade or we are now in the period of holy war and so on. So this is really influencing the way of thinking. Or, okay, if we are talking about a holy war which lasted for or a religious war which lasted for decades or centuries, can we still talk about kind of peaceful cohabitation of people in that? So in in the periods between the major military expeditions, were these people living together? Did mm. they work together sometimes? Did they have trade? Mm-hmm. and exchange between them. So what is the characteristic of this? Is it simply that we are talking about innovations of military technology and big battles and <laughs> building of amazing castles right. and so on? Or it's only one aspect of that, what we in a very general way call crusade? Hmm. I'm again going back to the the few things that I read on it. I know that along the lines of peaceful cohabitation, one of the uh, one of the complaints of the Pope at, at at one point in the 12th century was how in the city of Jerusalem you have all of these different religious minorities, you might call them, even though they actually made up the majority, living in what was supposed to be a Christian city. So. I think that, you know, it's it's very easy to think of the Crusades nowadays in one particular way, but that's not exactly a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of open mindset to how, uh, what was actually going on in yeah, the Near East at that time. And I think actually all of these communities you were talking about mm-hmm. had their own interpretation sure, sure, about sure. the events and what they what they experienced and what they, uh, how they interpreted that or how they remember these things. Now, this is, I think, a very important other aspect, namely that when we are talking about the past or any aspects of the past, uh, we just 
cannot get away with it without uh, the previous interpretations <laughs> of generations and generations of scholars, mm -hmm. scholars, politicians, and so on. So, for example, in Crusade, uh, we just recently had uh, a program in which one of the key elements was the new research connected to the what we call the Northern Crusade or the Baltic Crusade. So, because there were all kinds of periods in different areas mm -hmm. when there was crusade. Now, in this, you see that this crusade, which was mainly made by the Teutonic Order, which mm -hmm. is a kind of military religious organization, which at the end even created its own state mm -hmm. in the Baltic area, northern part of present-day Poland and some of the Baltic states. Now, the interpretation of this story has got all kinds of effects on present-day situation, but at the same time they were influenced by contemporary political, religious, ideological things. I mean, it, there is one interpretation that these crusades were uh, part of a German civilizatory attempt to bring culture and religion to this pagan, uncivilized world. In some other interpretations, this was the first period of a kind of colonial attitude towards these areas. And those people who were living there, they, they, what they did, they had a kind of freedom fight against <laughs> these uh, bloodthirsty occupiers. <laughs> And if you think about like 20th century history mm -hmm. and the history of that area, yes. you can easily understand that a story of the uh, Baltic or Northern Crusade and the Teutonic Order in the 14th and 15th century can be interpreted in so many fundamentally different ways serving contemporary or at that time contemporary uh, political agenda, religious and propagandistic things. I, I whenever uh, whenever we we talk about this, I always think of that one scene from that uh, Russian movie. I think it was from the 40s called Alexander Nevsky, mm -hmm. where he makes it very clear that his enemies aren't the ones coming in from the east, i.e. the Mongols. They're these Germans coming in from the west. A very um, unsubtle sort of a po um, political message in what is a movie about a 13th century prince. <laughs> yeah, and clearly uh, a movie which was made under certain influences. Oh, yes. Let's <laughs> formulate it in that way. Uh, which otherwise I think is a is 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 one of the amazing movies of, of film history, mm -hmm. but it's clear that you cannot separate it from the time when it was made and how it, at that time past has been used or abused in order to fit into a, a propaganda machinery, mm -hmm. and this movie is in a way part of that one, although on the level of of really uh, artistic film production. Fair enough. The um, 
You talked about, uh, well, we, we talked before about the Teutonic Order and, um, one thing that I, 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 I have to ask about you based off of your previous research is that, um, in my understanding for a while, you said that the Teutonic Order, um, set up shop in Eastern Hungary, um, in, I believe it's present day Transylvania. Um, what exactly were they doing there? Yeah, this is uh, this is uh, a history which is also interesting in the sense of interpretations. It's okay. interesting for for uh, its uh, historical contacts and and for the history of the order. But it's it's also a little bit more. Yes, what happened is that the first decades um, of the 13th century, a mm-hmm. king. Andrew II, who is otherwise also known for other activities related <laughs> to crusades, he himself a cru- only crusader king of Hungary, mm-hmm. invited this Teutonic order to settle in the um, eastern part of Transylvania, present-day Romania. There's a there's a region called Burzenland or Borza, which is the southeastern part. Mm-hmm. Uh, of Transylvania. And it's clear that the idea was to protect that land hmm. because there were continuous waves of eastern nomadic attacks coming from uh, the eastern steppic region outside of the Carpathians. And uh, so to have a military organization that sounded as a good idea or looked as a good idea for the king to invite them. Mm -hmm. And it's particularly in the light of uh, the history of the order is interesting. Perhaps they tried to have more areas under control or maybe even income and so on for the war in the Holy Land, which mm-hmm. at that time was still the main idea that that's their main duty. But quite soon they got into a conflict with the king mm-hmm. who invited them. And the reason is, I think, is quite clear. These Teutonic Knights behaved in all sense, as they behaved in the Holy Land or as they could behave in the Holy Roman Empire. And the Kingdom of Hungary was not the Holy Land or the Mm. Holy Roman Empire. The Hungarian king had other understanding how a region can be organized. I see, okay. And so it's, it's something about conflict of power. The king believed that this group will good to protect uh, the border of the kingdom, while most probably the order believed that, yes, they can do this by establishing themselves almost as an independent power region. Mm-hmm. And this led to a conflict, which then led to the expulsion of the order, which is interesting because then they that was the first attempt to have a kind of regional power center for themselves in Europe, hmm. and then they move to the um, northern Polish areas where they finally created the state. And uh, just one more question, completely unrelated to all of this. Um, 
Is that we talked about video games earlier and these sort of uh, war type things? Is there anyone in particular that you think is a really good or really terrible uh, uh, interpretation of the Middle Ages? You mean the the games? Or? The games. <laughs> I'm not that familiar. I have ah. to say, I, I used to see them because there are the very very interesting things about them. The one is. Clearly, you can make an interesting study how they are interpreting sure, the sure. period you are <laughs> dealing with as a as a specialist and not as a um, game creator. <laughs> uh, but I, I also have to admit that uh, sometimes they are the most sophisticated things. So if you if you look into this one. I also work with people who try to do three-dimensional reconstruction, virtual reality reconstructions of medieval things. And we all know that to put together just a 30-second animation sure. of a reconstruction of a medieval palace complex, that's terribly a lot of work and money. Now, you have got this work and money in two places. One is film. Mm-hmm. And the second is nowadays is is IT technology and actually games. Mm-hmm. So software development with games because you can sell this in thousands and hundred thousands while mm-hmm. our academic books are usually not selling <laughs> in that high number. Fair enough. Well, Um, just having a few final uh, words on our talk today. So far, we've uh, been talking about monasteries, red pointy shoes, video games, and uh, crusades. And uh, sounds all very medieval, <laughs> I believe. So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> not that I'm complaining, mind you. We, uh, it's 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 been a very very uh, good talk, and I'm well. All I have to ask is, um, is there any sort of uh, Final word for our listeners out there about sort of newer, exciting things in uh, how we're trying to understand the Middle Ages that uh, you'd like to tell them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that I'm the person who really can say that why it is so interesting and uh, uh, what is new in that because it's it's part of my works and hobby in a way so that's <laughs> too much in this way but i certainly see something um in um, in let's say everyday life or in schools and so on which is uh, a change and i hope this is a change which is uh, which is uh, significant and goes on because uh, in my understanding it it helps us in many ways and also it's a different type of approach towards history what mm-hmm. what i mean by this is that in many parts of the world and in many school systems history was used only uh, either to to teach us to to understand the future better because there was this belief that history mm-hmm. can help us understand our period and mm-hmm. and the future and so on te- can teach us how to behave now i still 
to some extent believe that it's not bad if you understand some of the things from sure. the past. <laughs> you may it may be helpful for you to understand the present or the future. But this is this is more a kind of functional understanding. Uh, what I see more and more is that history and Middle Ages, it's in many ways, it's an alien, alien word for us. So, I mean, it's not like, it's like a, a touristic experience. Yeah. If we, if we visit that word, this is terribly interesting. And it's terribly interesting because it is not our word. I mean, if you think about how interesting it is to travel to a different part of the world, mm -hmm. which is so different from your own, that is one of the reasons to, to, to have tourism. Now, this is with the past. And if the travel is not about simply dates of, of, uh, battles and rulers mm -hmm. and so on, but it's an experience, then I think the Middle Ages is also very interesting in that way. So if we are not only thinking that we have to learn all the laws which were passed in a certain period because this still influences mm -hmm. in some way our life, which is actually true, uh, then you can think about Middle Ages as a word, a different word to be visited just because it's so interesting. It's so different with all these you know, knights were mm -hmm. terribly interesting and the monks who were maybe not so interesting in the first look, but mm -hmm. they certainly had a very different type of life. And uh, I think what we experience now is that the approaches are getting a little bit closer. So it's not anymore regarded as a kind of big problem if a scholar is ready to provide information for a game developer mm -hmm. that look your previous version's castle mm -hmm. is actually not a very good one because it shows a castle which was there rather hundred years later right. than the time <laughs> and it's also working in the other way around that sure. all these innovative technologies which are influencing our life today can bring us to a better understanding. So if I can, you know, find on my iPod the things mm. quickly for a site which I'm visiting now, then maybe more people will look at least just for a few moments uh, and to see what's going on. I have to agree, and one of the reasons I was drawn to the Middle Ages is that not only is it a very exciting time, but I think no matter how you slice it or no matter what you get out of it, it is a very important time period. So uh, on that note, thank you very much uh, for joining us today, uh, Professor Laszlowski. To the listeners at home, uh, please visit us at medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Um, shoot us an email if you want at medievalradio at ceu.hu or visit us on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs>